Hi, this is Pastor Grayson Gilbert from Missio Day Fellowship of Kenosha, Wisconsin. I'm thankful you found our sermons, and I hope that they've been an encouragement to you in your walk with Christ. This sermon was, however, preached to and for the people that God has entrusted to me here. We would ask that if you are in our area, we would encourage you to come and worship with us, but that if you are not in our area, know that these sermons, while valuable resources, are simply no replacement for your own local church. And so in light of that, we would say you are to submit yourself to the faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Today we're going to be going through Psalm 54, and it's a rather wonderful psalm that speaks in many ways about who God has revealed himself to be in Scripture. Now, if you look at the title of the psalm, it's actually quite clear what the historical context of this is. He says that it's for the choir director, it's on stringed instruments, right? These are the musical notations, but it is a mascal of David. And the occasion is when the Ziphites came and said to King Saul, is not David hiding among us? And so while you don't need to flip there, just know that that situation arises from 1 Samuel 23. And this is a time where King David is on the run from Saul because Saul is trying to kill him. And the Ziphites, these are people of David's own tribe. They're from the town called Ziph, hence the name Ziphite. But rather than stand for their kinsmen as they're seeing David persecuted by Saul without any cause, these people known as the Ziphites betray him. They hand him over to Saul and say, why don't you just come and kill him? They encourage him to do that. So if you look, at, you look at everything that's going on in David's life, all the circumstances that are surrounding him are truly bleak, right? He has the king who wants to kill him. He has his own flesh and blood betraying him. And yet he doesn't wallow in despair, which is rather incredible if you think about it. Instead, what we find in this psalm is that David is a man who simply looks at the unchanging nature of who his God is, and he takes that and then informs his hope with it all the more. And while he draws out this series of what I would say is an incredibly rich theological truths, for David, it's not merely this intellectual exercise. It actually is incredibly practical because he's able to see that through thick and thin persecution and even times of peace, in his circumstance, it is persecution, right? But he's able to see that this is who God is, and therefore my hope can truly rest in him. Because this God is who he claims to be, David trusts him. He actually trusts him. And so my hope that as we simply unfold this beautiful reality is that wherever you may find yourself today, whether you say that you're a Christian, whether you say you're not a Christian, whether you're in the middle of a trial, or whether you're in days of peace, that ultimately you would simply be able to look and behold your God all the more and come away with a deeper trust of who this God of the Bible is. And the reason I say that's my hope is actually quite simple. If you can understand who this God is and come to trust in him, not only will you find salvation, not only will you endure through the various trials of this life, you will ultimately cross the finish line and see this God face to face. And yet you will look at every day in between through the lens of scripture, the lens of God's word, where it is revealed to us that God himself is the very foundation of everything that we believe and hope in. And so with that, I want to turn your attention now to this psalm where we start to see this reality unfold for us, this reality that is ultimately so precious to the future king, David. In this psalm, David reveals three reasons, ultimately, why we trust in the name of the Lord, as he's going to say. The first reason is that he is our advocate who saves us. The second reason is that God is our helper who sustains us. And finally, 
God is the righteous judge who delivers us. So look with me now at verse 1, where we see the first reason why we are to trust in the name of the Lord, that is, that God is our advocate who saves. Now first, notice David just simply asks the Lord. He begins a prayer here, and he says, Save me, O God, by your name. Now when David is asking that the Lord save him by his name, all he's doing here is appealing to who God is on the basis of who God has revealed himself to be in his word. He's not just simply asking a question here. He's actually relying on the foundation of all that God is. And all throughout scripture, you, have, you see God reveal himself in various aspects of his character or his nature to his people. And all these names simply reveal a different facet or perspective of who this God of the Bible truly is. So picture it much like a multifaceted diamond, if you will, where you look at it from one angle and there you see God's love, but then you, you, t- you turn it and subtly distinguish from that as you see an aspect of God that is his mercy. Turn it again and you find God's grace. Turn it once again and you see God's justice. And as you continue to turn this diamond all the more, all you do is see more and more of who this God is and who he's revealed himself to be. And as he reveals these different names through scripture, this is much the same of what's happening. He describes himself as Elohim, the creator, mighty and strong. He is El Shaddai, the God Almighty. He is Adonai, the sovereign Lord over all. He is a God who sees, the God who heals, the Lord our provider, the Lord of lords and King of kings. He is Yahweh, the great I am. And in every one of these aspects, he is simply revealing himself further and further to his own people. He is showing that his name is consistent with who he is. And it's on this basis of who God is in this psalm that David simply cries out to the Lord to save him. He is Savior. He knows there is no other name in heaven and on earth that can save him. Remember the situation. David is truly at the end of his rope here. Every which way he turns, he's surrounded by those who are hunting him down and trying to kill him. He doesn't know who among men he can trust. Anytime he actually even tries to do something right, he gets people killed in the process of it. It's a very real predicament. It's a very real situation. And he knows that God is the one who rises as Savior, but ultimately God is the one who stands in the gap between the guilty and the unguilty. He is the one who rescues his people from harm. He also knows that God is a God who will not leave the guilty unpunished. Well, David looks out and he sees, this is precisely what I need right now. And so what he asks, therefore, in light of this fact is that he simply asks in the second half of verse 1, vindicate me by your power. Right? He's asking the Lord once again to vindicate him, but why? Or not why necessarily, but how? Through his power. And so you see immediately the tone of his request just shifts yet again, ever so subtly. And what he's depicting here is this God who is the God of justice. He is a God of might. He is the God of truth. His request is very, very simple. Vindicate me. Vindicate me. Prove that I am innocent, Lord. And so what he does is dial in on two different aspects, key aspects of who God is. God is, again, the God of truth, but God is also the God of all power. David recognizes in this time, his name is simply being dragged through the mud. There's nothing he can do about it. He is powerless, but he says, God is not. David is not asking, Lord, would you judge me and just see if I'm innocent? No, he, he actually knows he already is innocent. 
And so he's rather asking that the Lord would prove his innocence. And how he would prove it would be by delivering him, by saving him from his persecutors. It carries this specific judicial response. He knows the Lord must intervene. The Lord must prove David's innocence, and he can only do so by rescuing him. Otherwise, what happens is that he's dead. Right? How do you prove the innocence of a man who dies at the hands of his persecutors? Not in that moment. The people would just simply see this as vindication of his enemies. They would see that they triumphed over him and that David was not to be the future king. And so in light of all this, again, that his life is on the line, David is literally pleading with his God. He's urging him. And you see this in verse 2. Right? He just cries out once more, Hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to the words of my mouth. And all he's doing here is showing that he knows that if the Lord tarries, if the Lord delays and waits, he's dead. It will be too late, in other words. And so what he's doing is he's asking rather boldly, I might even add, that the Lord would just listen to him and act. It's quite the prayer. You think about it, he's, he's made his request known and he doesn't do what you and I so often do, which is we kind of hem and haw and we get out to the point where we're like, okay, would you, would you help me? But you do you, I'm going to back off. No, David's like, look, if you don't answer me, I'm going to die here. Hear my prayer, God. He doesn't come timidly before him. He doesn't look at God as if he's bothering his heavenly father because his father's got better things to do. No, he looks at God and he understands on the basis of God's own character that he can come before him with boldness. But behind all of that is a presumption that his God actually cares for him. Behind that is a presumption his God actually wants to hear his prayers the same reality is consistent with who we find God to be in the New Testament. What I mean by that is you find even in the book of Hebrews, right? We have a superior high priest in Christ. We are to enter the throne room of grace with confidence. That's with faith, he says. Why? So that we may find mercy and grace in our time of need. He doesn't say come in with reservation. He doesn't say you know, just kind of hem and haw and eventually get to the point. No, you come in with boldness on the basis of who Jesus is and what he has done, knowing that your heavenly father cares for you, but that also Jesus sympathizes with you in your frailty and your weaknesses. What he's saying ultimately is you and I have a constant audience before God. And this is something even David recognized at this point because he had this audience before God as well. And I think of a practical example of it. I I got annoyed by it, and this just shows you how much better God is than I am. But my youngest daughter came into her room at like 4 a.m. the other day. And the reason for it was because she was scared. She knew, despite mom and dad's sin and despite the potential for us being cranky, that she had an audience with us. But how much more so your heavenly father, who does not turn in his concern towards you, who does not change his mind and his love, who through Jesus Christ has set his affections and care upon you, who never grows cranky or weary of your requests. Beloved, you may not find yourself in a position where your life is on the line, but you will always find yourself in need. But you will always find that if you are in Jesus Christ, you have an audience before your Father. This is where ultimately your theology of God and who he is must inform you. What I mean by that is quite, quite simple. 
if you're in the midst of a trial, come before your God and make your requests known. If you are in need of wisdom, come to the God who gives generously to all those who ask in faith and do not doubt. Day or night, no time is off limits. Silly or not, no request is off limits. You might not get answered in the way that you hope you do or in the way that you believe you should be. But at the end of the day, the Lord is the one who will see even your bad prayers and take those and transform them in a manner that is consistent with his own desires for you and his own nature. Do you have a need? Ask the Lord who provides. Are you in fear? Do you waver in your faith? Are you scared? Then ask the Lord who sees you. All you must do is come before the one who hears your prayers and cares for you. Do you not see how wonderful of a reality that is? Through the midst of anything in life, that there is this guarantee that if you have faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that God has granted you an audience before him, and he cares to hear even what you think are the dumb prayers. Remember, just as David did, that God has revealed himself in his word. He has revealed himself in various ways. And as you pray, simply let that be a reflection of how you pray. In other words, pray God's own word back to him. Because my point in that is simply that even if he takes your, your mucked up prayers, so to speak, and he can transform those, how much more so the prayers that are actually good and consistent with his word and his character. In the midst of it, though, what will happen is that if you are a person who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is, if you are a man or woman of faith, you will see even the goodness of God when he says no. You'll see it's not a withholding father who scolds you because you're a fool, that he's constantly wagging his finger at you as if you've always been the one who screws up. You are the black sheep of the family. Instead, you'll come to see that even God's denial of some of your prayers is a loving response of a father who knows what's good for you and who knows what's best. He's not turned you away or forsaken you, but ultimately he has supplied an even greater blessing in his love for you. And I don't mean that that's some health, wealth, and prosperity reality where he's now going to bring out what you think is best again. What I mean is that God's blessing and how he answers his prayer, even in his denial of your prayer, is always born out of the fact that he is your good, loving father who cares for you. And despite what you may think you need, he knows what you actually need. And he will always supply you with what you actually need. All of it is a reflection of who God is. All of it is a reflection of who he has revealed himself to be. And the question is, do we have an understanding of this God who is? Every bit of David's prayer throughout the psalm rests on the foundation of who God is, but it also, again, comes out of a place of need. But David trusts God. He doesn't seek to meet his own needs. He doesn't seek to do it his own way. He turns to the Lord. Why? Because he knows this God. We've already touched on the reason why David does all of this and why he begins this prayer. No, it's an imprecatory psalm, meaning it's a prayer of judgment on the evil or on evildoers. But there's reasons why that's so. All of it's set upon the backdrop of who this God is, who has covenanted with his people. 
But I want you to notice how he describes his persecutors in verse 3. Notice what he begins by saying here. Right? We know the occasion. Saul's persecuting him. David's own countrymen are turning him over. And yet he says, For strangers have risen against me, and violent men have sought my life. Now that term strangers is often reserved for those who are not Israelites. Meaning there are people who are foreigners. They've come into the land. They've come in to kill and attack God's people. But here, David actually looks at it and he says, these men, who he actually knows quite well, by the way, are strangers, they're foreigners. Well, what he's saying ultimately is that these people may know of God, they may know of God's word, but they do not love the Lord. In other words, they are not a people of the covenant, they are not true, genuine believers, even though they may be flesh and blood. Instead, they are violent men who profane the name of the Lord and want to kill the next king in line. That's who they are. Do you see how David's request is urgent? But do you see how also far from God these men truly are? Their actions, their desire to kill him, all of it, though, stems from a a much deeper issue of the heart. In other words, all that is is fruit. Their murder, as bad as we like to think all that is, and it is, don't get me wrong, but the murder of this man that they're plotting to do is just simply a fruit born out of the foundational issue of their heart. So the fundamental reason why David regards them as foreigners or strangers isn't because they want to kill him. It's because they have not set God before them, which is what he tells us in verse 3. Now, this is the same, pretty much the same exact statement David made in Psalm 53, where he says, the fool says in his own heart that there is no God. Now, to set God before them would mean that these are people who genuinely love the Lord. They obey his commands. They have continually set God before them, right? It is their constant business to know this God and to love this God and to obey this God and to treat their neighbor as themselves. They would obey his commands. And you can see clearly this is not the case because they seek to kill David. They're men who live without any reference to God and his commands, right? They might externally give off the appearance of a righteous people, but inwardly, they're just filled with wickedness. That's all he's saying here. And so to David, these are really strangers, foreigners, in the truest sense of what that word even means. They may be part of the visible gathering of God's people, but they are not one of them. They are men of violence. They are men of greed. They are men of power and prestige. But again, all this stems from a problem of the heart. They hated God. They hated God. They were, to put it bluntly, religious hypocrites. They might be a very devout people to the undiscerning eye, but behind closed doors, they revealed themselves for who they truly were. And yet, like any issue of sin, everything gets brought to the light, beloved especially one so public. You can't have a man like Saul who's running amok in all his double-mindedness and his raging fury without revealing who he truly is and what it is that he truly loved. What this caused, though, was a burning question. All of the Israelites would be faced with a very real predicament because it's not as if you looked at Saul And it's not as if you looked at David and couldn't discern the character between these two men. But it's also not a secret 
that the prophet Samuel came to David and anointed him to be the next king. And so the question for everybody, especially as they're faced against Saul and his henchmen, was incredibly simple. Who do you fear? Do you fear God? Or do you fear man? Do you fear the Lord or do you fear man? Simple question, but not so simple, right? Certainly not without consequence. For David, for all his men, for all those who sided with David, I mean, literally, you have an entire town of people at Nob killed, slaughtered, simply because he ate the showbread and took a sword. To align yourself with King David was not merely political suicide, it was actual suicide. To align yourself with Saul, you get everything you want. You get the power, you get the prestige, you get the possessions, you get the f- everything you want. But only one king bore the promises of God. So in light of that, the choice became relatively clear, at least for any who feared the Lord. And the reason for that is quite, quite simple. Where the promises of God abide, there too the people of God abide. And that is how it has always worked. David and all those who stood by him would face death willingly, knowingly, deliberately. Why? Because they held by faith that God was the advocate who saves God was ultimately the God of the promise. God was the one who would make good on every word that he delivered. Any faithful Israelite would look upon this reality, and it was a reality, and see, this is not merely some head thing that I need to get. It's not some truth that I just need to confess and agree with. This is salvation history for my people. At every point, God has been faithful to save and faithful to his promises, Every single time they would see wicked men rise up on the scene throughout all of Israel's history, they would also see how God rose up and saved them and proved himself faithful yet again. And so they learned in a very real sense that they could always call upon the name of the Lord. Why? Because he was their advocate. He is the one who saves. He is the one who rescues. In every which way he revealed himself, by these various names and by these various aspects of his character, that is truly who he was. It was not just some designation, not just some flippant title. It was revealing another aspect of who this God is, the God who is always consistent with who he claims to be. And beloved, that is still who God is today. God is still the God who saves, is he not? God is the one who rescues. God is the one who is constantly at work bringing the hope of Jesus Christ throughout all the land, bringing those who are dead and blind in their sin to the light. God is always snatching people out of the throes of death and giving them new life. He is always working in your life if you are a genuine Christian to literally bring you to the finish line. On that final and faithful day, any who have a hope In the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he says, will be saved. God is still the God who vindicates, is he not? Anytime injustice is committed, anytime there is a wrong, God is the one who sees it. But on the basis of who God is as the true and righteous judge of all the earth, God is the one who will make it all right at the end of all days. 
we know that even if we don't see vindication in this life, that God is the one who will vindicate at the end of all days. No longer, in other words, will you be seen as the fool above all fools simply because you profess a hope and trust in Jesus Christ. Not not only that, but you simply won't be mocked. You won't be slandered or treated harshly. Even if you face persecution that ends in your death, beloved, the reality is that God is the one who takes up the case of his children and stands to defend the innocent. It may not happen in this life, but the promise is sure that in the next life, there is not a single soul who has been wronged who will not be vindicated. All injustice will be dealt with. And God is still the God who hears our prayers. He is the God who stands above. He sees the various passions and angers and everything else that this world is filled to the brim with, and he is unmoved by all of that. And yet, he cares enough for his children that his ears are always attentive towards their cry. How incredible is that? This is the God who has always been. This is the God who is. This is the God who will always be. Are you starting to see why David, in the midst of everything going on right now, is still looking at this God and saying, this is a God I trust. How can I do any other? Are you starting to see just why he does all of this? Right? He's got his trial on one side, but on the other, he has this multifaceted diamond that represents God's character, and he's able to turn it little by little and just continue to examine the God who is and was and ever shall be. And he says, this is a God whom I trust. And I can trust in him all the days of my life. I can trust in him all the more than I already do. Every time he turns that diamond and sees God a little bit more clearly, he sees his trial all the more clearly as well. And in all of it, all of it, beloved, David shows us this vitally important truth a truth that we must come to hope in if we are truly God's children. You can actually trust God. Radically simple, isn't it? You can adequately or radically trust your Lord simply because he is who he claims to be. He is always consistent with who he is. He is always faithful to his promises. And he will always be who he has always been. For him to stop doing that, he would stop being God. We catch just a a glimpse of one aspect of that in verses 1 through 3, right? God is the advocate who saves. That's one reason why you can trust in the Lord. The next one that David shows us now as we turn and examine verses 4 through 5 is ultimately that God is our helper who sustains us. Now, notice how he just begins this section. He says, behold, God is my helper. The tone of the psalm just shifts radically once again. He's, he's no longer crying out to God for help, but he's actually just declaring this reality, and he's declaring it in front of everyone. He's saying, everyone needs to pay attention to what I'm going to say. Behold, God is my helper. God is the one who stands by me in my time of need. Never has there been a moment where he has failed to come to my aid, says David. All of my enemies need to see this. Throughout every bit of his life, he has seen that the Lord is by his side. And you can, you can reflect upon the life of David and see this reality play out, can't you? As a young shepherd, as he's tending to the flocks of his own father, who was it but God who saved him from the mouth of the lion? 
As he stands before the Philistine, David is not standing there saying, I am mighty and strong. I'm the next great king. He says, no, as he picks up a sling and three smooth stones, and he says, my God will destroy you. And God saved his people. Now that Saul is hunting him down, now that his own countrymen are betraying him, this God who has always helped him is still his helper. It's not that God just simply fills up what is lacking in his servant David. It's not like David gets here and God supplies the rest of what he needs. It's ultimately that God is the God of help that David can't even get to hear. God just gives him literally everything that he needs because God is the one that's always acting and fulfilling and making good on his promises. In a very real sense, God is meeting the full need every single time for his servant. And he just emphasizes this point even further in verse 4, where he, he says this next line. He makes a next declaration. The Lord is the sustainer of my soul. And so he looks well beyond even the physical reality at hand. <clears throat> he looks at the spiritual dimension of this as well. He looks at all of life and death, right? He says trial or comfort, good or bad, persecution or not. God is the one who helps me. God is the one keeping me safe. God is the one supplying every single breath that I've ever taken. But not only that, God sustains my very soul. Every moment he is tempted to despair, the Lord is the one who lifts up his spirit and reorients his heart and mind to the truth of God's word, these foundational truths about his God. And he says, look, behold, this is who God is. You can picture it in your mind as if all this stuff is happening and he's reorienting his own mind. He's, he's recalling the truth of God's word and he's saying, God is my savior. God is the God of vindication. God is the one who hears my prayers. He's my helper, the sustainer of my soul. He has never failed me. And yet in all of it, there has never been a point in which he has failed to be good. Now think of this in light of your own life where the Lord has simply provided for you in your time of need. Perhaps it was a physical need. Perhaps it wasn't even that, but you just needed something and you didn't quite know what. And yet the Lord took the circumstances and lifted your weary heart amidst it. Or maybe you're in that point right now and you find that even as you despair, you've got this weird, unending joy that can't be dragged away from you. That as you weep over your child who is continuing to go wayward, that God supplies for your weary soul and he reminds you of his faithfulness and you cast your cares upon the Lord each and every day with the hope, with the hope that he will save them. Why? Because you know that God saved a wretch like you and he can do it again. The point is not that the Lord necessarily removes every difficulty from you, beloved or every trial, but that in the midst of those times, he supplies for your every need. I know most of you know this well enough, but sometimes the situation just doesn't change. It doesn't end. Things even get worse. You know what scripture does? It just declares the reality that if you desire to be godly, you must suffer. It just declares the reality that if you follow Christ, your Lord and Master, you too shall suffer as he suffered. 
No hemming and hawing, no equivocation. Welcome to the family, you're going to suffer. But you know what it also simply declares? That every step of the way, God is your helper and he is your sustainer. He is the one who meets your every need. It doesn't mean that everything will be whisked away. It doesn't mean that the hardship suddenly goes away. For some of you, it will move from one trial to the next. And as you feel as if your head is always just above the water, as if you are always sinking down into the depths of despair, the Lord continues to be faithful, does he not? And then you start to see it. You start to see how even in the midst of your trials and hardships that he is working all of it so that little by little you are sanctified. That is, you grow holy. You start to have different desires. You no longer desire to put a tantrum up like so many of us do, but you're now looking at it and saying, I'm going to choose righteousness in the midst of this. But I'm also developing an affection for the Lord because he just continues to be there. That as much as friends and family may depart from me, the one who stands by my side through it all is God himself. Despite the hardship, you find joy. Despite the suffering, you find hope. It's not that it's somehow fun or easy or light, but that little by little, God is making it so that way your joy is not bound up in this life, but in God himself. It's not for the sake of the trial going away. It's for the sake that God is who he says he is, and he is altogether glorious. Amen. And then you start to see that he brings you people. He brings you people in his church that come alongside you and love you and care for you in ways that you never thought could happen. They encourage you to persevere when you're ready to give up. He brings his word to bear in deeper and more meaningful ways, ways that you never saw before. He uses his spirit to simply remind you of the hope that you have in Jesus, who is the one who is your savior, the one who paid the penalty for your own sin. So that even as you despair over making the same conscious, deliberate, stupid choice yet again, he points you ever more back to the Savior, the one who bore the wrath of God in your place. And so you turn and you trust, and even if you don't make it unscathed, you look at God and you see that he is who he says he is. And as he works in these ways, what do you see? But that the trial is good. That the hardship, that the suffering is good. Because he is showing you little by little, all the more, that he is your loving father who cares for you, who shall not fail you. For the true Christian, trials and suffering and even persecution will always have a way of producing joy and hope and love. Always. Trials just simply strip you of this world or trust in this world. They cause you to see the truth of God's word. They cause you to see God more clearly. Hardship and suffering just remove the distractions that we're so easily contented with. They always point your eyes back to your Savior, Jesus Christ, your helper, your sustainer. Persecution even has a way of purifying the church like no other. When that time cuts, comes, all bets are off. Matt just talked about this in his last sermon. There's this reality that continues to be put in front of our faces week after week in some way, shape, or form about the reality of what may come, but what has always been part of the true church. 
But when that time comes and there's not this peace that's just so easy and we're so distracted, what becomes more and more important to you is that God is still the one who is God. He is still the one who cares. He is still the one who provides the means of salvation through Jesus Christ. He is still the one that even if you die is the one who holds life and death in his hands. Beset with trials as the life of the Christian may be, it is always one of great joy and hope simply because the truth about who God is shines through all the more even in the darkest of days. And all we see in this psalm is just a reflection of a man who knows what is true about God. What I want you to also see, though, is that David knows how God will help and sustain him. He knows how God will do it. And the way that he will do so is through the outpouring of his wrath. In other words, part of what informs the hope that David actually has is he he knows God is a God of justice and will repay evil and do what is right at the end of all days. Even in the midst of his own life, he knows that. So look with me now at verse 5. I want you to see David just makes yet another declarative statement here. Again, he's, he's done making his requests known. In verse 5, here's what he says. He will recompense the evil to my foes. He will repay them, in other words. All he's doing here is showing just another aspect of who God is. God is the righteous judge of all the earth. God is the one who will stand and not let evil go unpunished. And you know, he also expresses something about the way that God will work in his righteous judgment of evil. This is rather incredible. He will recompense the evil, the evil, specific evil to my foes. And so just as his men came up against David to trap and to kill him, he just simply says, the Lord's going to flip those tables right back on him. It's what the Proverbs say, when the man lays the trap for the righteous and he falls into his own net or trap, if you will, he's expressing this reality that God has this way of often just simply executing his justice in a very poetic way, if you will, where the reverse fortune of the wicked and the righteous takes place through his judgment. In other words, the wicked stand up and they say, I'm going to punish the righteous in this way. And God uses that very same thing to punish the unrighteous. Think of this same reality on display with Joseph, right? It's the same mentality being displayed here. Joseph's brothers seek to kill him. One stands up and says, no, we can't kill him. So let's just put him into slavery instead. And what, at the end of all of it, what happens? But that Joseph stands up and he says, no, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Not that God reacted to it. Not that God somehow took that and transformed that into good. But the very same things that these men did, God took, or did, rather, for good. It's a rather radical statement about the nature of how God works and how he responds to evil in our world. It's the same thing on display in this psalm. What's what's happening is that he's saying the very mechanisms that the evil men will use to destroy him are the very same mechanisms that God will use to deliver him. He's going to repay them with the evil that they have set against him. And scripture is just replete with examples of this. Right In Numbers 22, you find a story of a Moabite king. He calls upon a wicked prophet and he says, I want you to curse the people of Israel. And what happens instead, but that God takes that same wicked prophet and he now curses the Moabites and blesses the Israelites three separate times. 
Three times. The book of Esther is just filled with this. It's rather incredible. But the, the one I actually just find delightful is you have this man named Haman. He builds a gallows for Mordecai because he wants to hang him on it. And what happens, but that at the very end of it, Haman is the one that's killed. He's the one that goes to the gallows through a series of seemingly insignificant events that God orchestrates. But the principle being revealed in all of these different things, and especially so in our psalm today, is that God is the ultimate judge who will repay evil accordingly, and ultimately you and I need not fret. We need not exact our own vengeance. David has no worry about that. Well, that's what frees him up when he's in the caves and he sees Saul. He doesn't go and stab him in the back, even though he could easily do it. What he does is he just cuts off the corner of his robe and shows him, your life was in my hands, and yet the Lord spared you this day. All the while, he is trusting that it is God who will be the avenger. He need not rise up and defend himself. His life is on the line, guys. And he says, no, I don't, I don't need to do that. Just as God will save me, just as God will vindicate me, just as God will prove my innocence and hear my prayers, just as he is my helper and my sustainer, he is the avenger. All David need do is entrust himself to the Lord all the more who has revealed himself to be the perfectly righteous judge of all the earth who will extend his judgment in complete perfection. And so what he does here in verse 5 is he just says this. Right? He just, this is his last request here. He recognizes this truth about who God is as a righteous judge, the one who is the destroyer of the wicked, and he just says, destroy them in your faithfulness. Now, depending on what translation you use, you might have that word reflected a little bit differently as far as faithfulness. If you use King James or New King James, it won't be faithfulness, but ultimately it says truth. So he says, destroy them by your truth. However, many of your other translations will actually use the word faithfulness. What's going on here is they're they're trying to convey the same thing, but it's just a very difficult word to translate or to convey the meaning of in English. In the Hebrew, what it's speaking of is both aspects of this reality. But there is this enduring faithfulness and truthfulness bound up in who God is. It's not speaking directly of his covenant faithfulness or his law, even though these things would undoubtedly be touched by that. In essence, what he's saying is God is the very embodiment of truth. God is the very embodiment of faithfulness. And because all of this is true, based on who God is, the truth cannot help but be faithful and true. And it will always be that. To try and put that even more clearly, he's in essence saying what's true is only true because it flows from God's own nature. In him there is no falsehood, nor is there any deviance in what he said is true. Truth will always remain true because it comes from God himself. And therefore, you can always rely on what God has said because just as God is unchanging, so too is the truth. And so when David asks that the Lord destroy the wicked by his faithfulness and truthfulness, he's just appealing to an aspect of God's own unchanging nature. Right? He knows that the Lord must judge the wicked, and he says, based on your character, O God, destroy them. All he's doing is bringing the truth about who God has revealed himself to be back to God. 
but he's applying it in this particular circumstance. You could think of him perhaps even remembering a passage like Numbers 23:19. It's just thinking, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Now take that and apply that to this aspect of God's character bound up in his justice. He is always faithful to bring about what is true and right. The reality is that David acknowledges there is no harmonious balance between truth and falsehood. There is no yin and yang, if you will, no shades of gray where something is somehow true for you but not true for the next guy. There is no nebulously morally neutral ground, in other words. There is right and wrong, black and white, truth and falsehood. There is the constant, unchanging, utterly truthful and faithful God who reveals himself. And there is the lie. And there is no peace between. And part of that reality is what David says here. God is a God of justice. God is the one who destroys the wicked. God is holy. As God does this, He is bound by his own nature to judge evil and pour out wrath in the very perfection of his justice. And beloved, this is the same fate that awaits those who do not place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And we see this all throughout scripture. We've preached on this multiple times. At the end of all days, God will rise as a righteous judge. He will decide between every man what is right He will do away with all evil, all wickedness, and all those who fail to repent and believe the gospel. At the end of all days, what will be administered is perfectly true righteous judgment. For David, he knows that he can trust that God will save him and that God will vindicate him and that God will do all of these other aspects of his character simply because God is the one who does these things, but he also knows that God will avenge him. And in this, he actually has hope. All of these things are David, or things that David just simply believes by faith because he's revealed it in his word, meaning God's revealed that. But he's also proved himself faithful. In all of this psalm, He is simply looking more and more upon who his God is. And his hope is being informed all the more as he does it. He looks at God first and he sees that God is a God who saves. Secondly, he looks at his God and he sees God is a God who helps and sustains. And the way God will help him and sustain him is through his judgment and wrath. And now it just dovetails once more into this reality as David then vows to praise this God because he knows that he is the righteous judge who delivers. These verses, the final two verses I'm going to show you here, they just form this bookend to the same theme that we've been discovering all along, that is the name of the Lord is trustworthy and true. As he draws everything to a close here, he's just recounting these various aspects of who this God is, and he's saying that because God is who he is, I trust him. But he says that, God is also good. And that goodness plays out in a rather important way. And we've discussed it a bit already, but I want you to see it all the more here. So look with me now at verse 6, and we start to see this next reality that he displays, which God is the righteous judge who delivers. 
He says, willingly, I will sacrifice to you and I will give thanks to your name, O Yahweh, for it is good. Notice how confident he is here. Notice how he makes a vow to bring forth sacrifice and thanksgiving at the temple. But remember, he's not in Jerusalem. He's hiding. He's being persecuted by Saul. He's literally on the throes of death. And yet he rests confidently that one day he's going to go before God in the temple and be able to do these things. He's going to be able to make good on his vows. And the reason is quite simple, because as he's demonstrated all throughout this psalm, he just trusts all the more in his God. Sorry, I'm getting louder because of the sirens. He looks at it, though, and he says, the reason God will not fail me is because the promises of God are bound up in who he is. All the way back in 1 Samuel 16, you had the prophet Samuel come on the scene and he anoints David to be king. The spirit of the Lord comes on him and it departs from King Saul. And from that time forward, everything's radically shifting in the kingdom. Saul hates David and begins to persecute him and try to kill him. But everybody knew what happened. Saul knew it. The Ziphites knew it. David knew it. For those who did not believe, all they were doing is seemingly thinking they could overthrow the promises of God. And yet for David, all he's doing is simply looking at this and saying, no, God has declared it through his prophet, and I believe it, and I trust it, and hold it by faith. Why? Because God is good. It's not a matter of if, but when. Why? Because it's God's word on the matter. It's irrevocable. It's bound up in the name of the Lord. It's part and parcel to who he is, his very nature. And he does this by invoking the personal name of God, that is Yahweh. This is the God who revealed himself to his people, Israel. He is the great unchanging, the great I am. This Lord who he sees as the one that's over all creation, who rules with absolute authority, is the one who makes promises that he will not fail to his people. But he also makes himself known to them. And all he's doing is he's bringing to the forefront that this God is the God of the promise. This God is the one who is always faithful and true. It's impossible, in other words, for God to break his word, but it's also impossible for man to thwart God. It's impossible for God to fail because the very moment he does so, he stops being God. God is the eternal one. God is the great I am. And so what he does is look with confidence. He knows God will always be found faithful and true because he has yet to reach a moment where he has not been faithful and true. But notice that he says God is qualitatively good. It's another way of just saying that reality, right? The name of the Lord is good. Yahweh, this name is good. He also is just drawing that reality at home saying God himself is good. And that's where you see the reality of David's response in the midst of his trial really hinges off of this. In the midst of fleeing and being persecuted, he still can look upon the Lord and say, God is good. He looks and sees the character of God. He turns that diamond ever so slightly once again. And he looks at all of this, all the things that he's seen thus far. And he just concludes by saying, God is good. He is the very fount of all that is good. And yet that goodness culminates in his deliverance. 
That's the unique thing about this. He says, in other words, his vow of praise is attached to the fact that God will snatch him from harm. He will bring the evildoer to justice. And all of that is a pure expression of God's goodness. Right? It's pretty hard to make good on your vow of praise if you're dead, right? But look with me at verse 7. I want you to see just how confident he is. He says, for he has delivered me, past tense, already taken place, right? He has delivered me from all trouble, and my eye has looked, again, past tense, with satisfaction upon my enemies. Saul is still alive. All these men are still alive and trying to kill him. And in the midst of that, he looks at it so securely that he's just like, you know what? Already done. I am already looking with satisfaction upon my enemies because I know that the judgment of God rests secure, that God has pronounced it and he will do it. The only reason David can actually do this is because he takes God at his word. He knows God will have the last word. God will prove his innocence, but that will also be poured out through the punishment of the wicked. And the reason why God will do this is because of who God is. But David's triumph here, as he's looking at all of this, he's not gloating over the fact that these men are simply going to have misfortune and be judged. He's actually anticipating that the Lord's perfect, righteous judgment will be expressed. But he's also looking at it and seeing an incredible thing that you and I often miss in the wrath and judgment of God. The very same judgment that falls upon the wicked is the means that God uses to save the righteous. Here's what I mean by that. As God exercises his judgment, it is a grace to his people. By it, he actually frees them or delivers them in one aspect. When the scriptures declare that the wicked are judged justly under the wrath of God, it is scripturally speaking a good thing. And one reason for it is actually quite simple. They are no longer around to afflict the righteous. They cannot wound the people of God. They cannot try and destroy them and murder them and do everything else that they continually do. But another aspect of it is simply that God has promised to judge evil. He has promised to deliver his children. And then you look at it and you can see how Scripture just declares this reality to be a good thing because God himself is good. And so in that, he's just revealing another aspect of his goodness and his immovable character in which he must punish evil. In some cases, that deliverance is immediate, right? David will see this in his lifetime, and he knows it. There's no question in his mind about it because the word of God has declared this reality. And yet, in many instances, that deliverance will not be immediate. What I mean by that is that you don't have necessarily the same exact promise bound to David here, but it is something that in one shape or another, you, you do, if that makes any sense. The deliverance that you and I have to await is something that is yet future in many ways. It is something, in other words, that we must anticipate by faith. Because you won't see it in this life. To make it even more clearly, or known, I guess, you will have trials that will simply continue until the day you die, perhaps. You may have enemies that will spring up that you never see brought to justice. They may inflict much harm on you and much evil upon you all the days of your life, but none of that changes the promise that God has made that he will deliver us from every harm 
and bring us safely into his kingdom. But also know that you're in great company, so to speak. For all of God's people throughout all of time, we have faced the same common dilemma where our greatest deliverance is yet to come. You may see God act in glorious ways. You may see him deliver you in the moment, but oftentimes you just simply won't. And that's where it gets hard. But the reality is that all of God's people have been in this same boat where we are waiting for the day God lifts the curse finally and fully and judges all evil and all of creation itself is finally redeemed and made new. And until that day comes, what we ought to be is a people of much great faith, much like David here. The reason is not born in and of yourself, though, beloved. It's born out of a reflection of all that God has been, is now, and always shall be. It is born out of a reflection of our trust in the name of the Lord. Why? Because this is who God is. And so as I draw all this to a close, a simple question remains, how do you apply this psalm today as a Christian? How do you look upon it and draw that correlation? Well, in many ways, I think that's quite easy, but the most important way is I want you to know that Christ himself is a very perfect embodiment of all that God the Father revealed himself to be to King David. Christ is the exegete of the Father, as John puts it. And so if you want to know this God, the one who stands above all of creation, all you must do is simply look to Christ. Scripture describes him in various different ways. He is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. And in there you see God in all his creative wonder. Scripture also describes this one as the Prince of Peace, the Mighty God, the Everlasting One. And you see him in his eternality. And yet you also see this one as the Savior, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the one who is to come and make all things right. And there you see God in his mercy. But there you also see God in his justice. Because at the cross, these two things meet in a rather mysterious and yet wonderful way. Mercy for the one who confesses. But justice, nonetheless, must be poured out upon Jesus Christ, for he is the one who bore the wrath of God in our place. In all of these different things you see at the cross, and especially in the person and work of Jesus Christ, a revelation of who God is. And in the culmination of that is this loving God who has made a way for his people to be redeemed from their sins. And yet it is not merely at the cross that we see the revelation of Jesus Christ made known to us, but that he will come again and prove to be the great judge of all mankind. So my plea to you today, if you are a Christian, is that you would reflect upon who Christ is and who he has revealed himself to be in Scripture and see that in every single way that this is a God who you can trust. If you can trust your Lord with salvation, that is your eternal state, you can take him at his word for that. You can trust him in every bit of life. All the minutiae you can look at and have freedom from Anxiety, depression, all those different things. But you will only have that if you see God as he truly is. If you are here today and you are not a Christian, though, my message in many ways remains the same to you. And that I want to simply point you once more to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Look upon him and there see God. Look upon him and see him as the one who came and died, the Savior of all the world the one who can free you from the curse and stain of death, the one who can remove the stain of sin from you, 
You may not think of yourself as evil as the next guy, but none of that really matters at the end of the day. The very same reason that these men were judged will be the reason that you will be judged. And that is because you have not set God before you. And so for you, I just say, look at Jesus and all that he is and recognize that the scriptures declare that he is the son of God who lived a perfect life on your behalf. That if you trust in him by faith, that the just punishment for your sins can fall upon him and that in the place of the wrath that he bore, he can give you righteousness instead so that as you stand before the father, you will not be judged in your own sin, but that you'll be looked upon as righteous because Jesus has done it. It will not be anything that you can ever do or accomplish on your own. Well, as soon as you start to try and work towards it, it is no longer grace. You cannot earn it. And so come before the one who has revealed himself to mankind today and live. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have been so gracious to us that you have not only revealed yourself in Scripture, but that you have specifically sent your Son into the world, that through him we may have life. I pray for those here today who do not trust in Jesus as their advocate, as their helper and sustainer, that they would see him in these ways truly and fully. They would would fall before you and admit their guilt and recognize that you simply would take that and forgive them through your mercy. But I pray for all of your people here today that they would be strengthened in their faith, that they would look upon this merciful Savior whom they have come to trust in and that they would trust in him all the more, that as we continue to see this world tear itself apart at its seams, that we would not be those who freak out, we would not be those who stand high and mighty above it all and try to judge with this snottiness, but that we would ultimately bring this same gospel we have come to believe and hope in to this dying world and show them why we can trust in the name of the Lord. We thank you again for your grace and for your mercy. I pray that you would indeed give us that as we ride home, but that you would cause us to remember these wonderful truths about who you are all this week. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.